This is our second week in the book, uh, in a series on questions. We've been working through a number of questions. This is our second one, just on questions that were asked of Jesus and analyzing how he responded to them. And more importantly, not just what he said in response, but how he went about answering those questions. And so we've selected uh, a few from throughout the Gospels, and uh, we just have a privilege and opportunity to study through those. And, you know, one of the things I realize is we as Christians... At times, we can be so intimidated by the sheer volume of potential questions that somebody who doesn't share our faith and our convictions, what kind of questions they could ask us. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. But if you ever go to a place where you know that there will be people who don't share your faith, don't share your convictions, you know they're there, you know that they're the talkative kind of people who are going to ask you questions about what you do and why you do it and all that kind of stuff, you're thinking to yourself, man, they're going to ask me something that I'm not sure I'm going to have an answer for it intimidates us. It causes us to feel kind of anxious. And we're like, geez, I don't know. I don't know what they're going to ask or why they're going to ask it. And at times we can feel kind of paralyzed by that. You under, you, I don't know if you ever felt like that. I know I have. It's kind of awkward, intimidating. And yet the Bible says we should be ready to answer any question that anyone should answer. And so when we think of those things, of people actually asking us questions and we actually having answers, not so much. It's kind of intimidating. We don't really like that. What's, uh, what's important about what we're about to see today is that Jesus is asked a question by a group called the Sadducees, but they're not trying to trap Jesus like we saw last week from the Herodians and the Pharisees. They're trying to humiliate him. They're trying to publicly disgrace him, discredit him, and humiliate him. And I think there's a lot of application for us today because some people who don't share our faith, they would love nothing more than to make sure that we publicly are discredited and humiliated. And so how do we respond and how do we go about being Christ-like in the midst of that? And I think that's going to be an important thing for what we learn today. I remember one of the first times I've ever felt publicly humiliated because of a question that I didn't have an answer to. I was in college. And uh, we had this annual fundraiser. It was a celebrity golf tournament. And uh, we had baseball players. So I played baseball. So we had these ex-baseball players, Hall of Famers, and all these people would come to the celebrity golf tournament. They played golf, and we got to meet and interact with them. And I got to meet a man named Tommy Lasorda. I don't know if you know who that is. But he was the old manager of the L.A. Dodgers. And uh, he asked me this question. We were talking. He said, so what position do you play? And I said, I play center field. And he said, where do you bat in the lineup? I said, I'm a leadoff hitter. And he goes, ah. How many ways can you score from third base with less than two outs? And I just looked at him. I was like, oh. And my mind was racing. Like, oh, I got to add, add. How many, how many? And I, I was going through it. And then before I could answer, he goes, there's 11. There's 11 ways. You've got to know that. I was like, yes, sir. I will know that. I, yes. It was super intimidating. And so I turned around. And there's all, not all my teammates, but there's four of my teammates looking at me going. And I said, did you know that? And they're like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I knew that. And I go, what are they then? <laughs> Bingo, you didn't know. And so, I mean, I just felt so humiliated. And, and so anyways, when I started coaching baseball, um, I started to ask our kids, you know, the question. Let me tell you, because they're like, oh, I don't, I would teach them how to field a ground ball. And they're just like, no, I don't want to do that. I want to do it this way. And I would say, son, how many ways can you score from third base with less than two outs? And they're like, I don't know, coach. And I was like, if you don't know that, why won't you listen to me about this thing? You know, public humiliation is really effective. <laughs> and, uh, 
And so the kids were just, you know. And, and anyways, we started counting at this little fundraiser. It was me and my teammates started counting. And we got the different numbers because it depends on if you count a hit as one thing or if you count like home run, triple, double, single as four different things. And so anyways, all that to say is I remember feeling totally publicly humiliated. And I remember thinking, I never want to feel like that ever again. And if you've ever been humiliated publicly, you also understand that you never want to feel like that again. It's terrible. And we as Christians can feel similarly when we are encountering someone who's asking us a question publicly perhaps, maybe in the company of two or three people that we don't have an answer for. We feel a little bit intimidated. We feel humiliated. And we're like, never doing that again. (laughs) That is terrible. Well, there's another option. Get the answers. But when we think about the multitude of questions, we're thinking, oh, my goodness, there's got to be like an infinite amount of questions, therefore an intimate, infinite amount of answers. I, feel, I don't have time for that. Like, I don't know. And what I'm suggesting is this. We need not fear the multitude of questions thinking that there must be a multitude of answers because in reality, the multitude of questions all find their answer in one thing. It's the gospel. I know it sounds simplistic, but it's true. The gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem what he has created from the fallenness of sin and what he plans to do about it. It encompasses everything that has ever been created. It includes everything which has been touched by sin, which is everything. And it's everything that God plans to do about everything. And when you have that kind of understanding of the gospel, you realize, oh, there's really nothing left. The gospel has a word to say and truth to bear on everything. So if we would become people who are completely sold out and we are completely committed to one singular, unchanging, glorious, beautiful, life-transforming truth, if we would just be committed to that, commit our whole lives to it, our confidence in it and a study of it and be willing to die for it, everything else will be, be taken care of. God will see to that. If we would just come to the gospel, understanding that this is the supremacy. This is what I need to focus on. And the reason I say that is because that's exactly how Jesus worked. Everything, have you noticed, that Jesus talked about, everything Jesus did, everything Jesus commanded is always flowing out of the purpose for which he came and the purposes for which he seeks to accomplish. Everything. Everything he taught, everything he did, everything he commanded is for that singular purpose. And so therefore, if that is Jesus' singular purpose and he's able to be prepared for any question that's asked of him, then if we are committed to that singular purpose, we would be ready for any question that comes our way as well. You tracking with me, church? Kind of? You'll see. We're going to love God with our minds today. Verse 18. Chapter 12 of Mark. And Sadducees came to Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven 
had had her as a wife. Jesus says to them, Is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Oh, Jesus. That is not culturally acceptable, what Jesus did right there in our culture today. Can you imagine that? Somebody asks you a question, the first words out of your mouth is, well, first of all, you're wrong. And here's why. And then the end is, so as you can see, you're dead wrong. That just doesn't work today. We don't talk like that for various reasons, which I may or may not get into. But in order for us to feel the weightiness of this interaction, we need to kind of come to the text and we need to ask ourselves some questions about what's going on here. What's the context? Who are these people called the Sadducees? You see, when you read the Gospels, you open up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're introduced to a couple of people groups that you're maybe not very familiar with. Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, Hasmoneans, Essenes, scribes, chief priests, elders. They're all distinct and unique, and they're all people that Jesus interacted with. And unless you know who they are and what they thought, you don't really feel the weightiness of the interaction between Jesus and they. So we need to know who are the Sadducees. The Sadducees are the priestly leadership in Jerusalem. They're not a separate group from the chief priests, scribes, and elders. Instead, they were actually an ideological group that included chief priests, elders, and scribes. And so they're amongst the priestly group, but they just have a different belief system. They have a different kind of perspective on things. And so the Sanhedrin that I talked about last week is the collection of 71 leaders in Jerusalem who are priestly in nature, and they are the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And among that 71 collection of men in the council, some are Sadducees and others are Pharisees. And they're distinguished by what they believe. So, according to first century Jewish historian Josephus, he said that the Sadducees are the upper class of society, and he called them aloof, which means they didn't quite understand what was going on with common people like us. And he also said that they were part of the aristocracy, which means they went to the best schools and had the best access to the best resources. You get that? In our culture, we have this term for those kinds of people. They are called the 1%. And so this is the Sadducees, the one percenters. Now, what is it that distinguished them from others? And the distinguishing thing was their beliefs, what are called presuppositions. Big word, presuppositions. If you play Scrabble, you will win if you use that word. Presuppositions is a big word which basically means this. A presupposition are the things you assume to be true without going through the necessary process of asking the question, why do I believe that is true? Okay? So you believe that's true. And somebody says, like a two-year-old, why? And you go, because. <laughs> you have a presupposition which isn't very strong. The stronger your presupposition is, 
is related to how well you can articulate the reason why you believe that to be true. So if you don't understand the reason why you believe a thing to be true, your presupposition is weak. Okay? And so the Sadducees had presuppositions. If you break it up into its parts, the prefix is pre, and then the word is supposition, suppose. So they presuppose. They decide ahead of time what is true without necessarily working through the process of why I believe it's true. Now, what's amazing is the Sadducees, their presuppositions are in stark contrast to that of Jesus. In fact, we see in verse 18, the Sadducees came to him and the narrator tells us one of their presuppositions, which is they say there is no resurrection. They say there is no resurrection. Paul capitalized on this. If you remember the Apostle Paul, he gets arrested and he's brought before all kinds of kings and councils. And one time in Acts 23, he's been in front of the Sanhedrin, which is the council of 71 priestly leaders. And they bring him in front and Paul looks at the council. And this is what happens in Acts 23, verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there's no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. You see what Paul did? He looks at the 71, he goes, oh, these people are Sadducees. They believe this. These people are Pharisees. They believe that. I'm in, like, handcuffs. I'd rather not be. I'm a Pharisee. It's a thought grenade. And he launches that thing and they begin to just fight amongst themselves. And they're like, let's get rid of Paul. I, I got to deal with you, buddy. And they start fighting among themselves. Beautiful. I love it. So you can see that they have the presuppositions that there is no such thing as the resurrection. There are no things as angels and they don't believe in the spiritual realm. But presuppositions are those things that you haven't given much thought to to know whether or not they're true. And as we will see, they haven't thought thoroughly through their convictions. You see, when we're having a conversation with somebody and uh, we're talking to them about what they believe and they may be asking us questions about what we believe, it's important for us to get to the presuppositions. You see, we as Christians, if we're ever asked a question for why we believe, we can explain that, and that's no problem. And if we want to get to the bottom of what other people believe, we can ask questions, and that's no problem. But the best thing that we can do is this. As we ask the questions, we're always trying to get to the presuppositions. We're trying to get to the heart of the issue. You see, everyone has like a belief system, which is kind of like an onion. You have like your beliefs on the outer side that you just kind of peel off, and you're like, I don't care if that's not true or not. But the further you get to the core, the more strongly you hold to that. And once you get to somebody's core belief system and you begin to poke at that and kind of say, well, what's going on there? What do you mean by this? And what do you mean by that? And, and then you ask the most important question there is, which is, why do you believe that to be true? It is completely unsettling if somebody hasn't done the hard work of analyzing their presuppositions or why they believe what they believe. So what we're asking is for someone to give the source of their faith, the source of their belief, why they believe that to be true. And for the Sadducees, 
they didn't believe in the resurrection angels or spiritual things because they believed it was completely unsophisticated to do so. It was illogical. It was absurd. And it didn't fit with their particular reading of Scripture. And so the narrator helps us by seeing in verse 20, or excuse me, verse 19, where they draw their source of authority. Look at this in verse 19. Teacher, they say to Jesus, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. They say Moses wrote. One of the things that we need to know about the Sadducees is part of their belief system is that the first five books of the Old Testament, which is the books of Moses, popularly called, are also known as the Pentateuch, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They believe those were the only five authoritative books in the Old Testament. The other things are just kind of, you know, they're helpful, but eh. it's Moses is the authority. So they appeal to who? To Moses. They appeal to Moses as their justification and as their authority. And they quote for Jesus a law, which is called the Leveret Law, from Deuteronomy chapter 25, which is this concept. You have a husband and wife. The husband dies. The widow is left, obviously, without a husband. But the deceased husband has a brother. So the brother is obligated to marry the widow and produce offspring. The firstborn son of that union will be considered the son of the deceased first husband to perpetuate his name in order that his name would not be blot out from the history of the Jews. Does that make sense? And then every son after that and every daughter after that is between the widow and her next husband. And so that's called the Leveret Law. And that is the backdrop for why Boaz married Ruth. Remember? Okay, hopefully you did. If you weren't here, you're off the hook. If you were here and you listen to all those sermons, you don't know what I'm talking about. Mm-mm-mm. <laughs> Bad news for you. So based on the authority of Moses and according to the Leveret law that is found in Deuteronomy chapter 25, they paint for Jesus this hypothetical situation. And we find that in verse 20. They say there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. Do you see what they're trying to do? They're painting for Jesus this hypothetical scenario which is designed to demonstrate the absolute absurdity of believing in a resurrection. Jesus, you are ridiculous for believing in the resurrection. And publicly in front of all these people, we're going to expose you and disgrace you and humiliate you in front of everyone because believing in the resurrection is absurd. That's their motive. And because of that, they ask Jesus the question, verse 23. And you can just sense the sarcasm just oozing out of their mouth. Verse 23. In the resurrection... When they rise again, whose wife will she be? For she had seven husbands. Think about that. What they're really saying is, Jesus, if you believe in the resurrection, 
then what you're saying is in heaven, God's okay with polygamy. He's not, though. So, your move. I love this. I love this because they're trying to humiliate Jesus. They're trying to show that he is an absurd, absurd thinker. They're trying to show that it is absolutely illogical to believe such things. But what's beautiful is Jesus has prepared for, was prepared for this moment. He did not prepare himself by knowing every question ahead of time, but perhaps he did. But I think the one thing that Jesus prepared himself for is keeping the focus of what he came to do. He just kept the focus. I came here for the, for the weak. I came here for the lost. I came here for the sick. I've come to do what the Father has sent me to do, to redeem sinners, to reconcile them to a holy God, and to ransom people. That's what I came to do. And so that singular purpose and that singular objective that Jesus always had in the forefront of his mind. Remember, he came and he said, I did not come to heal. I came to preach the gospel. What's amazing is he always kept those things in the forefront of his mind at all times. And it's those very things that we call the shorthand version, the gospel. It's his life, it's his death, it's his resurrection, it's his ascension, it's his coming again. Jesus was always on that subject. And that was why he was so prepared. So my belief is, if we would be like Jesus and make sure that Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension and his second coming is the foremost thought and the supreme thing that we focus everything about our lives on, then we would be prepared for any question, come what may. Any question. For the gospel has a word to bear upon everything. There is nothing outside of the gospel's purview. And I think that's what the apostle Peter meant when he said, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And when you keep that verse up there and you see the first line, it's all about making Christ first, preeminent in everything. Not make Christ first and then go do whatever you want. It's make Christ first in everything. We tend to think of Christ first and then you do all the other stuff, right? It should be flipped sideways. Christ first in this, Christ first in that, Christ first in this, Christ first in that. Does that make sense? And once we do that, then he goes on to say, be prepared to make a defense. The Greek word is apologia. It's where we get the idea of apologetics. Be prepared to make an apologetic, a defense to anyone who asks you for, and then notice the grammar here. First, we have an indefinite article, which means there's a multitude it's imprecise. Be ready to give an answer, to give a reason. There's a multitude of reasons. Pick one. But then there is for the definite article, the singular hope. 
You have to be ready to defend the singular notion of hope. And you know what? The gospel is our hope. That's what we have to be ready to defend. That is our hope. It's the blood-bought, empty tomb hope of every Christian, the gospel. And we need to defend that, be ready to defend that, but to do so with gentleness and respect. So whenever the questions fly, and whenever you're put on the spot to give an answer, if you've made Christ supreme in everything and you have a blood-bought, empty tomb kind of hope resonating inside of you, you will be prepared. You will be able to give an answer. Because if you have no answer to give, it's because you have no hope to offer. Every Christian has hope or they're not a Christian. So we must offer hope. And the way in which we do that is with gentleness and respect. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians 4, verse 5 and 6, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. I understand that they're gathered in this place. There are insiders and there are outsiders. Those of us who are Christians are insiders. We're in the church. We're in Christ. And those who are not are outsiders. And so we who are inside, gosh, we've got to be wise. We've got to be wise in the way in which we live with those who are outside. Making the best use of the time, which means don't waste your time that God has given you. Use it. Capitalize on it. Make the most of it. Walk in wisdom. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. I love that kind of image, seasoned with salt. You know, we talk about, ooh, that person's salty. It means they're like, you know, like they're kind of rude. They're off-putting. That's not what's meant. Instead, what's meant is the high-impact element. The idea is if you make chocolate chip cookies and you accidentally substitute, you know, salt for the sugar... You'll know because of the distinctive taste of salt. Brothers and sisters, we are to walk in wisdom towards those who are outside the church. And the wisdom with which we walk is that we are distinct, set apart, different. And the manner in which we are different is found in the graciousness with which we speak. Think of the vitriol and anger that you hear in our culture right now. It is not wise, Christian, to enter into public debate on social media and spew all kinds of mean, cold-hearted, ungodly things. If you really are that passionate about your viewpoints, invite someone to coffee. Invite them to your home. Sit with them and listen. Jesus reclined, dined, invited himself and invited others to eat with him. And most of the time what Jesus did was he sat with them, he listened and he talked. May we be like Jesus. Their strategy was to show the absurdity and complexity and absolute absurdity, illogical everything that Jesus had in regards to his belief in the resurrection. And you know what? There's many people in our culture that want to do the same thing with us. So we need to glean from Jesus how we should respond. And the first thing we see is we should respond with grace. We should be distinct. 
even though Jesus says this in verse 24, is this not the reason you are wrong? <laughs> because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus responds with a question. And what is shocking, he doesn't start out answering the question directly. He doesn't, you know, try to win approval and win friends and, you know, have influence he, by telling them, let me start off like this, you're wrong. It's not like the best strategy. I've heard it preached, actually. I heard a pastor one time say, when you read this passage, you need to know what Jesus is doing. And he, dude, he was getting all, he had a sweat towel and everything. And he was like, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you were wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. I remember sitting there going, yeah, oh, wow. Jesus was just like vein popping out on his forehead. Ah! And see, I, I think that pastor got that wrong. Because how do you, how do you, how do you take that kind of approach and how do you, how do you make it fit with be wise in the way you act towards outsiders? In your conversation, in your speech, let it be gracious, seasoned with salt. Give an answer to everyone who asks you for the hope that is within you, yet do so with gentleness and respect. How do you, how do you put the two together? And by the way, who did the apostle Peter and the apostle Paul learn the gospel from? Jesus. So do you think that they're really wanting you to be gracious, even though Jesus told them, oh, man, you need vein popping out of your forehead kind of passion? So I'd rather read it the way I think Jesus actually said it, which would be probably along the more lines, more along the lines like this. Is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you don't know either the scriptures or the power of God. Sympathy. Grief. If Jesus saw lepers and bleeding women, and his stomach churned with compassion for them. Would he not also have that same kind of feeling for people who are wrong in the way they interpret scripture? Would he not also be compassionate and his guts churning within him? Of course he would. Jesus cares about truth. Like I said, when we have our minds and our hearts captivated by the one precious, glorious, life-changing truth of the gospel of Christ, who is God come in the flesh, living a sinless life, resurrected, crucified, risen, ascended, coming again, you can let every question come your way and you won't be intimidated because you know Jesus is true. Jesus is risen. And so they come to Jesus saying, this is what the scriptures say. And Jesus say, says, I don't think they say what you think they say. You see, in our culture today, we have a lot of people who are experts because they watched a four-minute video on YouTube. And that works well if you want to change like a flat tire. But when you're talking about, is Christianity true? Watch this four-minute and eight-second video about how it's not. And you're like, okay. And then they watch the video, and then they come to you and go, I watched this YouTube video. Every time I have a conversation with somebody, and somebody says, I watched this video, and I went, oh, gosh. Because <laughs> that generally means you probably think you know more than you actually do. 
And that means I need to do a lot of questioning and qualifying everything that I say. And so I think that's good, not only to help people be humble, to remind them, hey, maybe you don't know what you think you know, but it's also good for us to be humble by that same kind of approach. Maybe we don't know as much as we think we know. You ever thought about that? It doesn't mean we don't know anything. It just means there are some things maybe we shouldn't be as confident in. And then Jesus says, look at this, his first answer. You don't know scripture and maybe you don't even know the power of God. You see, the power of God is always and most chiefly displayed in God's creation. When you see in the Psalms, it talks about the power of God. It's about God creating everything from nothing. There was nothing that existed, just God in his triune nature, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, living infinitely joyous and eternally from all God. And he didn't need to create anything. It just was God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally blissful, joyous in every imaginable way, loving one another. C.S. Lewis calls it, it's the eternal dance, which each member of the Trinity is submitting himself to the other. In loving, joyful existence. Beautiful. But then God decided to create. And he did so by displaying this creative, beautiful power by speaking into existence through a mere whisper, everything that is. And through that power displayed, he also created humanity, made them in his image and breathed life into their nostrils and they became a living being. You want to talk about power? Can you imagine taking Legos and lining them up and, and they start moving? I might pay to see that. That's the most powerful display of who God is. The fact is God can create life where there is no life. And if God does that in the natural world, and God did that for us initially in the, in the beginning of creation, then think back to what it means to be a new creation. That when we repent and believe the gospel, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us we become new creations. God breathes new life into us for where we were dead in our trespasses and sins. God resurrects the spiritual life. We are born again to new life by the breath of the Holy Spirit. And not only that, but God promises in Romans 8 that one day is coming where he will actually redeem and restore and reconcile even the natural world in a place called the new heavens and new earth. So that God displaying his power in creation is also going to display his infinitely more glorious power in recreation when he redeems and restores us finally and fully with our resurrection bodies and restores and renews all things. And when you look at that, you're like, man, that's amazing. That's the power of God. And Jesus says, when you don't believe in the resurrection, you have no concept of the power of God. Because the resurrection is death, but I say life. And God breathes. And what is lifeless arises to new life. That's what it means to be born again. That's what happened to me in 1999. I was dead in my trespass and sin. And God says, live. And I lived. He breathed new life into me. And so we await the return of Jesus who will consummate finally and fully his kingdom in what the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth in which we 
will inhabit and indwell the new creation as new creations. Glorious. And then Jesus, he goes on to help them. Not just telling them they're wrong for these two reasons. You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. But then he begins to articulate why. Verse 25, he says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So this is the power. Jesus starts with addressing the power. And he starts by distinguishing the fact that there is life and there is more life. There is life that we all have pre-death. And then Jesus says there is life in the resurrection, which is post-death. So there's life, death, life. And the only way to make sure you get life here is something has to happen in the life over here. And the death is the interruption between the two. So when Jesus says in John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So if in this life, pre-death, we believe in Jesus, then when we encounter death, we actually are entering into what Jesus promised, which is post-death life. So death becomes the gateway from this life to that life. And it's not like horizontal, like you just, okay. It's escalation. We go from dead life to new life. So listen to how Jesus explains in John chapter 6, verse 39. He says, this is the will of him who sent me. That is... God the Father, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. And if you notice in verse 40, there's a sequence here. If in this life you will look to the Son and believe in him, then you will get eternal life in this life. You get it. And then Jesus says, and then, implying death, I will raise them up on the last day. Which means if you want to be raised up on the last day, you want resurrection life, you want to live post your death, the only way to do that is to make sure pre-death that you have eternal life. And the only way to make sure you have eternal life in this life, pre-death, is to make sure that you're looking upon Jesus and you're believing in him. For apart from believing in Jesus, we can have no hope of life after death. And so Jesus' mission is to raise up the dead. But he qualifies that as all those who the Father has given him. Jesus' task is to lose absolutely nothing of those whom the Father has given to him, Jesus is to make sure that every person whom the Father has given him is ultimately at the end raised up to new life. And Jesus guarantees that's going to happen. Which means to us, brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian and you have eternal life in you because you've repented and believed the gospel... The hope of the resurrection, the hope of eternal life is not a wish. It's not that you have to like, yeah, I hope it's true. 
Jesus said, all that the Father has given to me, I will raise them up. Guaranteed. So when you read Romans 8 and you read something that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And you read about, will sword, will famine, will nakedness, will tribulation, neither height nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor life nor death will ever be able to separate us. The reality is when Jesus has you as his own, you are his forever. And the confidence that you have, that you will be raised up on the last day has very little to do with you. It has everything to do with Jesus. Do you believe him? Do you take him at his word? Do you think he rose from the dead or not? Because our salvation rides on that. And so don't be fooled, brothers and sisters, by the false hope and the false assurance that because you prayed the sinner's prayer when you were five, but you've lived reckless and ungodly, and you've sinned your brains out ever since, do not be fooled. You are not saved. You have to understand that. Because when God breathes life into you, you actually live as though you have life. Remember, you know that you are his by your fruit. So brothers and sisters, our confidence is not in ourselves and our intensity of faith. It is not in our, you know, praying this prayer when we were five or whatever. Our confidence is in Jesus. Do you trust Jesus at this very moment to save you from your sin and the wrath of God? That's your only confidence. It's Jesus or nothing. You got Jesus or nothing. And then Jesus goes on to say, look, here's here's the problem. When they rise, there won't be marriage and not giving in marriage. It's not going to happen in the new creation. And why? Because one of the major purposes of marriage is procreation. Christians, we need to make sure we understand that. When God created Adam and Eve, he said, go and multiply, be fruitful, right? You know how to do that. You know how to make more humans. There's only one way, male, female, make humans. And when God created Adam and Eve to be in this context of marriage for the purpose of procreation, he was intending for them to fill the earth with people who bear his image and thus by their lives and the way in which they speak and think and talk and do They can glorify God through their lives. And so God wants a earth which is filled with his God-glorifying, projecting, and image-bearing humanity. Now, when we get to the new heavens and new earth, there won't be a need for procreation because God will have filled his new creation with everyone who he has redeemed. The new creations, the new heavens and earth will be filled. The glory of God will be filled. Everyone written in the Lamb's book of life will be there. And therefore, there will be no need for procreation. Therefore, there will be no need for marriage. Brothers and sisters, never divorce procreation from the institution of marriage. It's not marriage without procreation. Genesis 1 and 2 speaking. That's pre-fall, by the way. And then he goes on and he says, and they will be like angels. Oh, This is so confusing for some folks. They're like, Jesus said we're going to be angels. No, he didn't. They're like, but Nana, she died. She's an angel. It's like, man, if you love your Nana, don't demote Nana. Don't demote her into an angel. 
Make sure that you give Nana the glory that God promised her if she's repentant and believed the gospel. She's a redeemed saint. And I hope you understand this. Let me show you from scripture why it's actually a demotion to think that you become an angel when you die. <laughs> Hebrews 2.5. The writer says, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. That is the new creation, the new heavens and new earth of which we are speaking. In other words, God has not created the new heavens and new earth for angels to inhabit. He is recreating and creating this new heavens and new earth in order for us as redeemed sinners, in order for us to inhabit. Okay, maybe you're not convinced yet. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. The Apostle Paul talking about people in the church arguing and suing each other. And he goes, dude, what are you doing? Don't you know that we are to judge angels? Well, wait, what? Hmm. Or 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, where the Apostle Peter is talking about the fact that the angels are flabbergasted, just amazed, jaw-dropping <gasps> at the thought of the gospel. He says this, that it was revealed to, the, to them, the Old Testament prophets and writers, that they were serving not themselves, but us, that is, us Christians. In the things that have now been announced to you, through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And it's those gospel truths which have been preached to you are the things into which angels long to look. In other words, the angels, have you ever seen that, that uh, sculpture of the, the thinking man who's sitting there with his fist? Just a picture, that's the angels. Looking at what God has designed and what God has accomplished in and through Christ and all the redeemed saints who will inhabit the new heavens and new earth, and they're sitting there going, whoa, that's unbelievable. Wow. So, brothers and sisters, if the new heavens and new earth is not the place for angels we are to judge angels and the angels are actually looking longingly into the redemption that we experience through the gospel why in the world would you ever want to demote your loved one by saying that they became an angel when they died you don't want to do that instead this is what we become when we die if we are repentant and believe in the gospel philippians 3:20. our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior the lord jesus christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We are going to be like Jesus. When he went into the grave and when he crawled back out, we're going to get that same treatment. We're going in the grave, but you know what? We're getting right back out. And we're going to be like him. We're going to be better than the angels. So don't demote Nana. Give her the glory and honor that is due her if she's repentant and believe the gospel. She is a redeemed saint. Jesus used their own source of authority against them. I love what Jesus does here, verse 26. He says, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, about how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He's not God of the dead, but of the living. In other words, you see what Jesus does? He says, Sadducees, wait, you believe the first five books of the Old Testament are the only authoritative source of truth? Yes. Okay. So using that same source, which you already agree with, 
Let me show you while from your agreed source you are wrong. That's amazing. That's amazing. Because now he's able to talk with them on common ground. You agree with me and I agree with you. This has authority. But now his answer to their question is going to be all the more persuasive because he's going to speak to them from a position they already agree with. This is an important strategy, I think, for all of us if we're going to have gospel conversations with folks. Think about it like this. If somebody comes to you and begins to ask you questions and you're reciprocating by asking them questions, and remember, you're trying to get to the center of that onion and you're asking these questions, why you believe this and why you think that. When you finally get to that nugget of truth that they believe is true and you ask them why, and maybe they have a reason why, And if that reason why resonates in any way, shape, or form with the truth, beauty, and goodness of what God has created in the world, then you already have a launching point and common ground from which you can take that truth and you go, can I I share some good news with you? Gospel. Every single time. I've done it with Netflix shows. I've done it with sports. I've done it with exercise. I've done it with pasta. Every single time, if you get to the bottom of what people think and believe and asking why, right when they reveal why, you're able to say, ah, can I share some good news with you? Gospel. Isn't it any wonder, speaking of pasta, like if everything is just utilitarian, why the enjoyment of food? Why? If everything is just survival of the fittest, why the enjoyment of food? Oh, good question. I'm not going to answer. <laughs> and I'm going to end with this. I just have a few minutes. I'm going to end with this. What are some ways that we can kind of apply this stuff? What, what are some implications? What can we glean from this interaction with Jesus and the Sadducees? Remember, Jesus ends his discussion by simply saying, you are quite wrong. The first thing that we can learn is this, and I think this is in your notes. As we approach Scripture... Acknowledge our presuppositions and let God determine his own plans and work. You see, when we approach Scripture, you and I need to be very careful that we're not just coming to Scripture to proof text what we already believe to be true. The posture that we should have is come to Scripture with humility, asking God, show me what is true. And if I don't believe what I'm reading here, change me. Change me. I remember being in college and having fundamental disagreements with people about theological issues and just going, you are an absurd moron. How dare you believe this? This is stupid. And what's crazy is the things that I thought was stupid in 2002, I'm now preaching with conviction today because I came to the text to find what I already wanted to find, not what was actually there. So we would do well to make sure as we approach Scripture to acknowledge our presuppositions and allow God to determine what it is that is true. Let God speak. Let us listen. So that's one way to do it. The reality is that when you come to a text (laughs) without understanding its proper context, it's what is called pretext. That is, you've already determined the conclusions that you're going to find there. And so we have to be very careful that we're not being people of pretext. Second thing, 
although there may be interpretations that we may get wrong from time to time, we may get some things wrong. We're like, oh, I thought that was true, but I don't know. We do know this. Jesus told these Sadducees that they were wrong, which means not just any interpretation is okay. There are some where Jesus is going, no, 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 no. So there's a scale of zero correctness to zero percent correctness to like maybe 100 percent correctness. Shouldn't we all want to kind of strive towards the 100 percent correctness? After all, it's something Jesus cares deeply about. Make sure that you are venturing into the 100% correctness area. Don't just go, well, that's just my interpretation. Yeah, but you're like 5% correct. You have 95% more to go. But there is one thing we are confident about and we can be assured of. The gospel is true. Historically, true. Um, We can validate it from all kinds of historical angles. The Bible speaks of it. It's true. Jesus is risen. This is true. So, as a Christian, be confident the grave is empty. You don't have to be ashamed of truth. When things are true, you don't, you're not embarrassed of truth. Anyone embarrassed of their food they ate last night? Maybe, I don't know. But we shouldn't be ashamed of just true things. It's just true. Jesus has risen from the dead. So you may be wrong on some interpretations, but the one interpretation you are not wrong on is Jesus has risen from the dead. It's just the way it is. There's really no debate on that. I mean, there is debate, but it's not very good debate. Thirdly is this. Be ready to answer questions, but do so gently and respectfully. And don't pander to the cultural pressure of today. Look, we shouldn't feel the pressure to anticipate every potential question has ever been thought. Concern yourself with the beautiful, glorious, life-changing truth of the gospel. Prioritize that in everything. And then answer accordingly. Feel free. People's eternal destinies are not hanging on how well you present the gospel. Who are you, God? Get over yourself. God spoke through donkeys. It's not the beauty of your or the eloquence of your presentation that saves people. Isn't that freeing? So good. But at the same time, don't give in to the cultural pressure. Here's one of the most culturally pressure-filled things that I've ever experienced, and I still feel quite often. It's the pressure that the culture tells you that the one thing that you cannot do is this. Do not tell people that they are wrong. You ever felt that before? I think that's why many of us don't want to share the gospel with people because we're like, I don't want to like tell them they're wrong. I remember when I was preaching at the Young Adult Ministry, there was a young man who came to me And uh, he said, Phil, I have something that I don't really agree with you on, and I want to talk to you about it. And I said, let's talk. And he said, here's the thing. Do you really want people to believe in Jesus? I said, absolutely. He said, well, I don't think you're going to be very successful because you're not very loving. I was like, wow, bro, thanks. (laughs) He said, well, you're not very loving because it's not loving to tell people that they're wrong. I said, oh, man, I see where you're coming from. I got it. I see your point. And I said simply, so what you're saying is it's wrong for me to do that. Like, I really need to make sure that I'm being loving by making sure I don't tell people that they're wrong. And that's what you're saying? He goes, yeah. And I was like, all right, I got it. Can I ask you a question, though? He goes, yeah, man, shoot. And I said, how come you don't love me? 
And he went, what? And I said, well, you just came to me and told me it's unloving to tell people they're wrong, but you just told me I'm wrong for telling people that they're wrong. So... And he smiled, and with a smile on my face, I simply said, bro, could it be that telling people they're wrong may in fact be the most loving thing there is? And his answer was, I don't think so. And that's what kind of culture we live in. And what's amazing is I don't think people know what they think they know. YouTube has made us all experts and none of us really proficient at it. And so what ends up happening is I I tend to tell people about the old, you know why we call people sophomores? It's two Greek words, sophos and moranos. (laughs) Sophisticated moron. (laughs) So they know enough to be dangerous but not enough to be helpful. I remember asking this young man, I said, can I ask you a question? What year are you in college? And his answer was, I'm a sophomore. And I smiled and I said, I thought so. (laughs) So brothers and sisters, we may be wrong. There may be some things we get wrong interpretation-wise. And we need to be humble about that. But there are at least one thing that we are absolutely not wrong about. And that is the gospel. Jesus has come, crucified and risen for the salvation of sinners. That's that's just true. Now, how we go about sharing that and how we go about answering questions about that, we need to do so with gentleness and with respect. We need to be slow to speak, quick to listen, and let's ask really good questions. And let's ask questions like, what do you mean by that? Or can you help me understand what you mean by this word? And when you use that word, did you mean this or this? Because ultimately, we're going to get to the presuppositions. And we're finally going to get to that question, why do you believe that? And they will be left with one of two options. They will be given an answer from which you can, the gospel. Or they will say, I don't know. And then you can say, gospel. No matter what, you get gospel. So, let's pray that the Lord would make us the kind of church that we would be soft-hearted, tender, affectionate, generous, gracious, distinct, bold, courageous, unashamed, unafraid, unapologetic, unflinching, loving, hospitable because only God can do that so father do that for us we ask I pray God create us in your image God we want to be like Jesus who was able to stand for truth and say that people were wrong but he did so with such sympathy such patience with such gentleness and respect, and yet with crystal clear clarity. God, we want to be those kind of people. And apart from Christ, we can't do anything. So God, make us as a church like that so that we can be lights, that we can be salt, that we can be an influence in this community for your kingdom. 
And we ask it in Jesus' name.